Poverty, poverty, not my loom is a saying all day. Poverty, poverty, not gather's too skinny to pay. Poverty, poverty, not keeping one eye on the clock. I know I can duckle when I hear my shuttle go. Poverty, poverty, not up every morning at five. I wonder that we keep alive. Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In each episode, I look at around 100 pages of the works of great American writers using the Library of America as my source material. In this episode, we'll be continuing our examination of Jack London's The People of the Abyss. It was published in 1903. It's, it's not a novel. It's based on his six weeks he spent in the east end of London looking at the conditions of working-class life. In the previous episode, I talked a little bit about Jack London's very colorful background, uh, the background of this book, and I, and I focused on his social Darwinism. And I tried to make the case that social Darwinism shouldn't all be lumped together as a right-wing uh, philosophy. Um, now, the essentials of social Darwinism is that this this kind of struggle for survival and dominance uh, in the natural world, which Darwin, of course, explained as, as natural selection. He didn't really see it as a struggle for survival so much. It's just, you know, how sp different species adapt to their environments over long periods of time. But certain sociologists, particularly Herbert Spencer, uh, uh, Darwin's follower Huxley did this too. They started to say, well, maybe this applies to explain differences in diversity within human cultures and even within individuals, that some people are just better suited to certain environments to succeed and thrive, right? And this would explain why perhaps Britain, at that time, Britain was such a successful and wealthy society and other societies seem so poor and backward in comparison. And some people even applied this to individuals to say, you know, like the capitalist is the you know the best able to succeed um, and so in this way it often got associated with right-wing uh, philosophy or philosophies that kind of in, in in protected the interests of the ruling class because they could say we have wealth and power um, or we should be able to control this colony or whatever because we're the most able right we're we're members of the progressive elements of the species and while that's the, I think, the dominant way we should probably look at social Darwinism, um, it, it also justified racism and empire and, and some of the most brutal aspects of 19th century capitalism. But for some social Darwinists, like Jack London, it was really a foundation for socialism. Uh, Jack London, and you really see this in The People of the Abyss, he talks constantly how brutal life is, how it is a, a, a kind of animalistic struggle for survival uh, for the people in on the East End, you know, and he often, especially in the second half of the book, contrasts their life with the lives of the people who, ha you know, who have power and wealth. But he doesn't think this is inevitable. He talks constantly about better alternatives, more prosperous ways these people could live their lives, better foundations for society. And, and one reason he focuses a lot on the institutions that shape the lives of the people in the East End um, is because he really does believe there are better ways to build a society. So he takes for granted this struggle for survival and the brutishness of, of life, but he doesn't see that as a good thing or something that produces a prosperous 
and better society. It just creates the worst of us. And I talked last time about the example that I believe it was uh, Huxley um, gave in his essay, Evolution and Ethics, of a garden, right? And if you let Darwinian logic work its work its way out in a garden, you're going to get the weeds are going to succeed, are going to win, and they're going to kill the flowers and the vegetables and everything that's good and beautiful about the garden. So it makes sense for a gardener to come in and actually, you know, I guess level the playing field for the good stuff, the stuff you want to develop, and that society also needs a gardener. And I guess that provides a role for a state and or for community or for just broad, just general solidarity to come in and improve conditions. Now, in one chapter, Jack London talks about Coronation Day, and he's shocked at how the people of the East End kind of embrace fully this... Um, this coronation of, of a new king. So this would have been the coronation of King Edward VII, uh, which did take place in the summer of, of 1902 when Jack London was there. So he did witness this. And I believe this is the same coronation that's referenced in James Joyce's Ulysses. There's a scene where Buck Mulligan kind of mockingly sings the coronation song. And a similar version of that song is actually quoted here by Jack London. Slightly different lyrics, but it, you know, I, I think they're referring to the same event here. But he's really horrified that the, the, the poor people kind of embrace the gaudiness of this. Um, and he, of course, you think about all of the kind of the love that the royal family still gets, um, even internationally, not just in England, um, in the face of growing inequality. And you might be able to make a similar critique that Jack London does here. Now, he said, quote, this is the most striking thing, the general heartlessness exhibited on every hand. It is commonplace the homeless on the benches, the poor miserable folk who have been teased and are harmless. 50,000 people must have passed the bench while I sat upon it, and not one on such a jubilee occasion as the crowning of the king felt his heartstrings touched sufficiently to come up and say to this woman, here, six pence, go to a bed. But the woman, especially the young woman, made witty remarks upon the women nodding and invariably set upon their companions' laughters. To use a Briticism, it was cruel. The corresponding Americanism was more appropriate. It was fierce. I confess I began to grow incensed at this happy crowd streaming by, and to the extent a sort of satisfaction from the London statistics which demonstrate that one of every four adults is destined to die on public charity, either in a workhouse, the infirmary, or an asylum. The second half of The People of the Abyss is a little more topical than the first half. In the, in the first half, he's, he travels around, he visits different institutions like the Spike, which is I think is like the infirmary, basically the public hospital for the sick, or the workhouses, or he, and he talks to people and he gets their stories. The second half is a little bit more macro, a little bit more of a broader analysis of the conditions, and we see a lot more of, of London's rage at the system. And the first half is a lot more ennui. It's just, well, this is the way it is, and he kind of feeds off the ennui of the people he talks to. In the second half, he allows his rage to come out a lot more, and especially this is when he's doing the much more macro approach to conditions in the East End. In a chapter called Property Versus Person, he simply, he gives a little introduction and then he just quotes um, the police blotter, essentially, and he gives like six pages. I guess it wasn't an easy chapter to write, but he, he just took out the police blotter from the newspapers uh, while he was there, and he just is focusing on how cruel the criminal justice system is, basically penalizing people for being poor. 
Quote, in a civilization, frankly, materialistic and based upon property, not soul, it is inevitable that property shall be exalted over soul, that crimes against property shall be considered far more serious than crimes against the person. To pound one's wife to jelly and to break a few of her ribs is a trivial offense compared with sleeping out under the naked star because one has not the, one has not the price of a dose. The lad who steals a few pairs from a wealthy railroad corporation is a greater menace to society than the young brute who commits an unprovoked assault upon an old man over 70 years of age. While the young girl who takes a lodging under the pretense that she has work commits so dangerous an offense that, were she not severely punished, she and her kind might bring about bring the whole fabric of property clattering to the ground. End quote. If you want to know more about this idea, I think the best book to read on this is Peter Limebaugh's The London Hanged. It, it was published, I think, back in the 70s, and it's been reprinted a few times. It looks on the, at the 17th and 18th century uh, pretty much exclusively, but it really focuses on the criminal justice system in particularly London during that time and how it reoriented to defend capital and property and how a lot of things that were publicly accepted, you know, not really as crimes, they may have been illegal, but they were things, just accepted practices became criminalized and even to the point of execution, like taking cloth home from the factory at the end of the day. Or he talks about shipwrights shipbuilders who would take wood back for their firewood at the home at the end of the day. This stuff became criminal later on. And a lot of the increase in the use of capital punishment was, and transportation to America, was the was due to was property crimes. And this is something even referenced in American Gods in the novel by Neil Gaiman in a little section he has on that. So um, it, it's about a woman who goes to America. Um, but she was actually lined up to be executed and was sent there. And here, this chapter, we don't have really executions, but we have just examples of how crimes against people are not punished as much as crimes against property. And he basically, his evidence for this is the police blotter. So it's an interesting chapter to read, even though it is just a series of these different accounts. In another chapter, just titled Inefficiency, London explains basically the reason for poverty is that there's a growing population of people who aren't needed by the market. And I think this is an important chapter to read because I think it, it reflects in many ways our own dilemma, and especially with automation. The people here aren't really dealing with automation so much. Um, maybe it's more overpopulation or low wages or, you know, there is an economic root to this. That's London's point. But now we have much more of the threat of automation and the question, what is the role of workers going to be in an economy that maybe doesn't need people anymore? Um, but we have a similar argument here. This is on page 117 of my version, uh, which is the Library of America version, as always. It says, it must be understood that efficiency is not determined by the workers themselves, but is determined by the demand for labor. If three men seek one position, the most efficient man will get it. The other two, no matter how capable they may be, will nonetheless be inefficient. If Germany, Japan, and the United States should capture the entire world market for iron, coal, or textiles at once, the English workers would be thrown idle by hundreds of thousands. Some would emigrate, but the rest would rush their labor into the remaining industries. A general shaking up of the workers from top to bottom would result, and when equilibrium had been restored, the number of the inefficients at the bottom of the abyss would have been increased by hundreds or thousands of thousands. So there's just, the point here is that there's just these impersonal forces that are causing these conditions. London certainly thinks it can be improved, but what you have here is this kind of brutal struggle for, for, for survival. 
and the brutal logic of the marketplace. In a chapter called The Ghetto, uh, London really describes the, the living conditions of the people in the East End, how little space they have to live in. I think at one point he he quotes it as less than 100 cubic feet per pe person in a lot of these uh, homes when the, I guess, the public health officials were saying minimum has to be like 400 cubic feet, right? So uh, a little bit of math shows you just how little that is in square footage. Um, so he describes essentially the East End as a giant expanding slum, right? Um, and if you, you know, a good book to read on just slum life and the expansion of slums is Mike Davis's books, uh, Planet of Slums. And he really focuses on the, the division in many of the world's great cities now between massive slums on the outskirts and these uh, physically large but comparatively less densely populated kind of city centers where the elite live, where you have all the shopping and, and wealth of the city, but on the outskirts are these massive slums. And it's just more evidence that the, the global economy doesn't need increasing number of people. And so those people just get pushed into, into these slums. Now, London sees this as a form of class war, uh, the separ separation of, of the poor to the East End. Uh, while the rest of London, the West Enders, live comparably well. To quote him, class supremacy can rest only on class degradation. And when the workers are segregated in the ghetto, they cannot escape the consequent degradation. A short, stunted per people has created, a breed strikingly different from their master's breed, a pavement folk as it were, lacking stamina and strength. The men become caricatures of what physical men ought to be, and their women and men are pale and anemic, with uh, eyes ringed darkly, who stoop and slouch and who are easily early twisted out of all shapeliness and beauty. To make matters worse, the men of the ghetto are the men who are left, a deteriorated stock left to undergo still further deterioration. For 150 years, at least, they've been drained of their best. The strong men, the men of pluck, initiative, and ambition, had been faring forth to the fresher and freer portions of the globe to make new lands and nations, end quote. Well, what we have here is essentially the foundation for H.G. Uh, Wells' The Time Machine, right? This, this separation of the working class and the, and the idle classes or the middle classes eventually are going to create, you know, into two different species, right? And I think this is what Jack London really believes is going to happen. H.G. Wells in Time Machine, of course, looks much farther into the future as the logical conclusion of it. But I think they're starting from the same observations here that, that over... A period of time over decades of industrial capitalism you start to have the gradual separation of people at almost a biological level now what does he mean by degradation here is he applying a social darwinian uh logic to it i i think jack london to be honest is um of course he still thinks this can be rectified he thinks there's ways you know we should immediately try to improve the lives of these people to stop this trend but i think if he he seems to be saying if it left if it's left uncontinued you're going to end up with Morlocks and, and Eloe. Eloe? Eloe? Maybe if someone knows how it's supposed to be pronounced, I don't know. But of course, in the time machine, you have the Morlocks, who are the descendants of the working class and the poor, living underground, they can't see, mentally degenerated. And then the people of the surface become small and slender and kind of, they're, they're kind of stupid too. They don't read anymore, but they're weak. And they kind of grown to two post-human species. Um, of course, you probably read that book. 
and all that. But here we see Jack London kind of suggesting the origin of that transformation. And it's rooted in the separation of, of the people into slums and gated communities. There's a couple, two or three chapters in this section of the People of the Abyss that look at, at questions of like wages, sustenance, the food they eat. Um, of course, it's really bad. Um, you know, he, in an earlier chapter, he takes them out for breakfast, a couple guys. Uh, some like it's the, the carter and the carpenter. He takes to breakfast and he gives them a really nice spread. And they love the tea, though. And they say, this is the best tea ever. And Jack London's thinking, you know, this tea's horrible. It's like basically, you know, tea-flavored bad water. Um, and we get a whole other chapter on this on the quote-unquote coffee houses of, of the East End. And here's what he says. He says, as a vagrant hobo in a California jail, I've been served better food and drink than the London workman receives in his coffee houses. While as an American laborer, I've eaten a breakfast for 12 pence, such as British laborers would not dream of eating. Uh, of course, he will pay only three or four pence for his. Um, so their, their, their quote-unquote hotels are really bad. The places they stay are horrible. The food they eat is bad. And they just don't have any money. That's, that's another thing he emphasizes. He breaks down what the average worker gets and you know how a lot of them have children, just how it's impossible to, for them to, to survive. Deaths in the East End are analyzed as well in this in this book. Uh, he compares the West End and the East End and basically comes to the conclusion that people on the East End have half as much life as the people on the West End because their life expectancy is so much less. And then how do they die? Well, they die of neglect. They die of, of starvation. They die of also depression. Uh, quote, depression in trade also plays an important part in hurling the workers into the abyss. Oh, sorry, that's the wrong chapter. This is this is just about uh, the economic forces, depression in an economic sense. It's the next chapter here, suicide, um, how which is all about how the you know a large number of people of the East End just kill themselves. There's even stories he gives here of people killing their children or the whole family off to escape uh, poverty. And he makes the rather radical claim that. These, are, these people are not mentally ill. He says some of them might be, but largely they are sane and they're making a rational choice when faced with, with their conditions. Of course, from Jack London's point of view, this is the ultimate in, in kind of the, the, the passivity that really bothers him about the East End. He, he wants these people to do something, and he's not really clear on what it can be. He rejects kind of the radicalism of the anarchists or, or some of the revolutionaries as, as futile, he thinks something can be done, but he's not really ever clear on what it should be. He's not saying you know, they should rise up because he thinks that just be irrational rage. Uh, but he does think things can be improved. Certainly, he's got the model of the United States where the lives of working people are, you know, are significantly better in his view. Now we come to in chapter 23. It's, it's one of the best in the book, I think, and it's about children. And I want to read you this passage, which is just pretty beautiful and tragic and it's it's about childhood and, and how there's hope in the childhood children of of the east end but how that is inevitably worked out of people now this is a, a happens to everyone of course is we lose our imagination we lose a lot of our optimism we lose a lot of our creativity as we get educated as we grow up um, but here it's even more tragic because it it takes what little hope 
there is in the East End, and and people mature out of it into this very brutal, cynical, and bitter life. Quote, there is one beautiful sight in the East End, and only one, and it's the children dancing in the street when the organ grinder goes his round. It is fascinating to watch them, the newborn, the new generation, swaying and stepping with little, pretty little mimicries and graceful inventions all their own, with muscles that move swiftly and easily, and bodies that leap airily, weaving rhymes that never, never taught in dancing school. I have talked with these children here and there and everywhere, and they struck me as being bright as other children, and in many ways even brighter. They have the most active little imaginations. Their capacity for projecting themselves into the realm of romance and fantasy is remarkable. A joyous life is romping in their blood. They delight in music and motion and color, and very often they betray a startling beauty of face and form under their filth and rags. But there is a Pied Piper of London town who steals them all away. They disappear. One never sees them again or anything that suggests them. You may look for them in vain among the generations of grown-ups. Here you will find staunted forms, ugly faces, and blunt and stolid minds. Grace, beauty, imagination, all the resiliency of mind and muscle are gone. Sometimes, however, you may see a woman, not necessarily old, but twisted and deformed out of all womanhood, bloated and drunken, lift her draggled skirts and execute a few grotesque and lumpering steps upon the pavement. It is a hint that she was once one of the children who danced to the organ grinder. End quote. So... His point here, I think this actually uh, is a challenge to comments he made earlier in earlier chapters about this kind of growth of two almost separate species through degradation. He sees that in the children, you have the same kind of creativity and potential as among the children in the more wealthier and affluent parts of London, yet something happens to them in life. So it's, it's not so much like in the genes, it's not a biological change. It's, it's a result of their conditions that turn them into something different, that take away their potential. And then he goes into the brutal details about what, what that is, how these children are, are matured into brutality. He even calls it the slaughter of the innocents at one point. Basically, growing up in this environment is the equivalent of slaughtering the innocents. In a chapter called The Vision of... A vision of the night you actually see London being quite prophetic here um, now I think at this point you already had soldiers returning from the Boer War maybe the Boer War was still going on um, but so and I don't know how much of the London poor served in that war he does mention the military as a place of that some people go to escape and the army being populated by many of the people who go there to avoid lives of poverty in places like the East End but he says, the dear soft people of the Golden Theaters and Wonder Mansions of the West End do not see these creatures, the poor, do not dream that they exist, but they are here alive, very much alive in their jungle. And woe the day when England is fighting in her last trench and her able-bodied men are on the firing line. For on that day they will crawl out of their dens and lairs and the people of the West End will see them as the dear soft aristocrats of feudal France saw them and asked one another, whence they came, are they men? Now, of course, here London is predicting uh, a revolution that would be so shocking to the upper classes of, of London as, as the French Revolution was to the aristocrats in France. Now, of course, England didn't have a revolution. Uh, you had others throughout Europe that shattered those monarchies. Russia, you had one that toppled the uh, monarchy in Germany, and you had the breakup of, of Austria-Hungary as well, all within a, a decade or so of, of the writing of this book. 
But London or England would see the rise of the working class and the rise of uh, the Labour Party, who would actually take power after World War II and, and affect some of the social reforms that London is calling for here. But at this point in history, London is focusing on this bifurcated London. Again, he doesn't think it has to be. There's better ways around it, but uh, this is the way things are at the moment that he's observing them. Um, getting towards the end of the book, um, London talks quite a lot about drink. And he, now London himself was a drinker. And we're going to talk more about this when we get to John Barleycorn or Martin Eden or those books. But he, he drinks a lot, but he has a very complex view of alcoholism. He doesn't think it's a, a good thing. And he, he talks about the how attra how attractive and, and you know seductive drink can be, but he definitely thinks it's generally a bad thing, especially for these poor. And he talks about how basically the people of the East End grow up in in a condition of alcoholism, right? Children quote children are begotten in drunkenness, saturated in drink before they draw their first breath, born to the smell and taste of it, and brought up in the midst of it. So he goes into this conversation and he thinks temperance is probably a, a generally a good thing for these people. It might awaken them to do something else with, um, with their lives. But he challenges the people who push thrift. Now, drunkenness and temperance and thrift often go hand in hand, right? When people point to the need of the poor to be more thrifty, they're often you know, drink or different kind of chemical abuse is often pointed out as the reason we need thrift, right? If they just took that money they spent on drink and saved it and invested it, they could pull themselves out of poverty. And Jack London wastes no time with this. He, he gets right to the hypocrisy of, of the, the doctrine, the gospel of thrift. And his argument is, is of course, well known to all of you, I hope, but it's the, it's the paradox of thrift. Right from a microeconomic standpoint, from a family economic standpoint, yeah, it's better off if you save than spend. Right, but from a macroeconomic standpoint, from the standpoint of the economy as a whole, if everyone is thrifty, if everyone saves, there's no consumer base and the economy collapses. One of the best arguments about the paradox of thrift that I've come across in my studies is um, Mandeville's, uh, what's his first name again? Bernard Man Mandeville, I believe. It's a 17th century writer. He's writing from England. I think he was Dutch initially. But anyways, it was back in the 17th century. And he wrote this book called The Fable of the Bees. And basically his argument is that private vices, drink, crime, prostitution, you know, overconsumption, all these things have public virtues, public benefits. And that's kind of the subtitle of the book, Public Benefits, Private Vices. And he makes the case somewhere like like a thief. A thief is a boon to the economy because for every thief you have, you're going to have to also hire police, jail keepers, uh, court systems to enforce the law. You're going to have to hire locksmiths to make locks on the doors because all the rich will want to lock up their possessions on and on that a criminal is a net boon to the economy is the argument he makes and that if you have a society where everyone is good and virtuous it's going to be actually a quite miserable society that's quite poor right a lot of our economic activity isn't things that we don't necessarily think of as good right drinking is an obvious example of it or maybe prostitution is, an, is another
To quote London here, to be thrifty means a worker to spend less than his income. In other words, to live on less. This is the equivalent to a lowering of the standard of living. In the competition for a chance to work, the man with a lower standard of living will underbid the man with a higher standing. And a small group of such thrifty workers in an overcrowded industry will permanently lower the wages of that industry. End quote. So his, his point here is that the best thing for the workers to do for their own benefit is to be as greedy as possible. Right? If all workers are greedy and demand more wages and demand more right to consume, the better, you know, that will kind of lift all boats because, you know, no one will be underbidding others. Quote, thrift negates thrift. If every worker in England should heed the preachers of thrift and cut expenditures in half, the condition of there being more men to work than there is work would swiftly cut wages in half. End quote. Um, so this is, I think, an important thing to keep in mind. Um, now, because we're in a very similar situation where, you know, you have a generation of people coming out of college heavily in debt in a very competitive job market uh, where you have really great inequality, right? Often wages can't keep up with the cost of living and the debt that many of these people incur. And what hurts on that is the consumer economy, right? Every one of those people who can't afford to pay their debts, it's obviously they're not able to afford to go to restaurants and enjoy life and consume, right? And so they might filter into underground economies, they get their media for free on, on the internet, on and on, and all that has a depressing effect on the economy overall. The best thing we could do is to abolish those debts, to spread out the money around, to create a basic income, and there's all kinds of schemes of what could be done to increase overall uh, demand in the economy, but it comes down to consumption is good, right? And I always kind of get a you know make a face when people say, "Well, we should you know consumption is bad," right? And you might hear this often from people on the left as well that consumerism is is the new opiate of the masses, right? That we just get brainwashed by t TV or movies. You know, that it, somehow there's an anti-consumerist value there. The problem with this anti-consumerist value is when a worker is demanding higher wages, when they go on strike to demand more money, like the workers in, in Dubious Battle, essentially what they were demanding, they just don't want more money in their pocket, right? They want more rights to consume. And in fact, many American social movements have been driven by this demand to consume. Even much of the civil rights movement, if we believe historian Lisbeth Cohen, and I think the book is called, um, I forget the name of the book, but it, her, the author is Lisbeth Cohen. It's a book on consumption. She makes this argument that much of the civil rights movement was really about access to, cons to consumption, right? Segregation actually bifurcated consumer access and, and, and options. Yeah, they, could, they would talk about rights, but deep down what they wanted was more access to the same consumer choices employment choices, salaries, incomes that, that whites had access to. So in the end of the day, it came to consumption. And she made a similar argument about the New Deal, where, where she argues that a lot of the social movements of the 1930s coming out of the working classes were responding to a decreased capacity of workers to consume, which they enjoyed in the 1920s a little bit more. So anyways, uh, get rid of thrift. We don't need thrift. Uh, is his argument here. And and then that kind of is the end of the book. And 
he does at the, in the end in a chapter called the management he he asks this question about civilization and he says is the problem civilization itself is is should we just get rid of it if civilization is causing all this misery maybe we should just dump uh, civilization altogether and he doesn't think so he actually thinks civilization has increased production power has made people more prosperous and richer and that's all been a good thing so he says instead the problem is quote-unquote management or mismanagement that basically civilization is being mismanaged and the products of civilization are being redirected he doesn't say how it should be managed better we guess his answer is some form of socialism um, but basically what needs to be done is, a, is not throw out the baby with the bathwater, but rethink how we form our social relations, what kind of institutions we use to improve people's lives, and, and basically become better managers of the civilization that we have inherited. And this is a lesson I think we still need. So this is an important book for us to revisit uh, as we face our own questions about what kind of economy and society we're going to live in. Well, I guess that does it for the people of the abyss. Um, I really do recommend taking a look at that. Um, in the next episode, we'll be looking at Jack London's um, The Road, which is his personal memoirs about his early life as a, a migrant worker and a vagrant. Of course, we'll just spend one episode on it because it's, it's short. It's only about 100 pages. Um, but thank you so much for listening. If you uh, have any comments on the people of the abyss, please um send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com uh, or leave a comment or a review. I'll try to respond as quickly as I can to that. Um, you know, if you, if you want to know more about these, these books, let me know that as well. Um, but I do really encourage you to go look this one up. It's still relevant. Much of what he, Jack London says here is still relevant. Uh, if you have comments on or opinions about his social Darwinism and how it interacts, intersects with the socialism and his socialistic ideas, let me know that as well. We'll be coming revisiting that with many of his other works. So once again, thanks for listening, and I'll see you in 100 pages. Poverty, poverty, not. My Louis is saying all day. Poverty, 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 poverty,